0: You're listening to the product podcast. Hey, Bamal, how's your week going?
1: Really good. Surprisingly busy. Yeah. How's your week going? Yeah. How's your week going?
0: Super well. Yeah. So this week we had Lewis Lin in, who's the author of Decode and Conquer, as well as Be the Greatest Product Manager Ever. So we got to learn from him and learn some of his tips and tricks about product management, which was very interesting.
1: That's great. I have I have read his book, uh, both the books in fact, "Decode and Conquer," and also the "Be the Greatest Product Manager." What I like about the book, the first one, "Decode and Conquer," is if you are new to product management and if you want to learn the frameworks and the vernacular of product management, how to work with different people, it's a great introduction. So personally, what I've found is. Uh, there are other while you are getting introduced especially on preparing for interviews as product manager there's another book called cracking the pm interview personally i even read that book as well both books are valuable i found uh for my personal test perhaps decode and conquer is more uh um more palatable for to my test or i could i was able to Graphs morph more because yeah. it has written the format of different frameworks, and, and it was much way way better book I found it personally than the cracking the PM interview, and second one which the greatest product manager right this is a recent book, it's a great book for someone to understand. When I read it with my my initial thought was people get confused what's the journey of a product manager in a career wise, mm-hmm. and it lays out the journey of a product manager from being an individual contributor to the chief product officer even to the founder and he uses the example of big companies and which is rare to find but to have the clarity of a journey of a career as a product manager is quite very very useful as well
0: yeah i agree and i think his writing style is super clear um it lays out really easy to follow frameworks which is um, great for us, too, because it's easy to implement a framework into our methodologies here at LeapFrog, since we already use so many frameworks.
1: Right. And what I found interesting, I listened to your conversation with uh, Larry's, and what I found it very interesting is the service lens, right? So he, his book and his, frame, his framework through the lens of a service company, that is very unique and interesting. And yeah. there are so many things to learn from. For example, as simple as that, you're talking to your client, then you're taking, for example, you're responding, you're going to a framework, but you don't want to go framework one by one, because if you do that, then it will feel like more textbook kind of stuff, and it will feel like you're more junior, but blending into conversation, that kind of uh, suggestion, and also suggestions as such as like okay when you are reacting something you don't have to brainstorm on the fly you can take a pause or you can also say hey i have more 90 more time to think about this and let let me get back to you in the future as well so those kind of simple techniques that we in a service company have become really a uh, valuable guide as a product manager in client and vendor relationship that is really interesting and really unique i think uh, uh, i listened to your conversation i really. F- think that our listeners will finding find it really really useful the conversation of course our conversation will uh, the, the the conversation between you and Lewis will be useful in addition to that if they can read, go and read both the books decor and conquer and be the greatest uh, yeah. weird product manager ever would be tremendously helpful for our listeners it was
0: of- yeah, really great like you're saying really great insights into how to be a good communicator you know yeah. how to take your time and think effectively. Um, And and he offers a lot of great strategies both and he was able to take his sort of big company experience Mm -hmm. and apply that to our more consulting sort of smaller company model. And so that's, that's really cool to see that these frameworks are applicable in multiple scenarios depending on where you are. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So if you want to hear more, continue listening and you can hear more from Lewis himself and you can also um, read his books if you feel so inclined, Decode and Conquer and, be the greatest product manager ever, um, as well as many others. Yeah, so today we're doing another episode of the product podcast with LeapFrog, and we're lucky enough to have Lewis Lin here today with us. Um, You know, he's a CEO of two companies, People May Have an Impact Interview. He's worked at Microsoft for a long time as as a director of product management. He's worked a long time at Google uh, to lead AdWord product launches. And as many of you may know, um, he's also written many other books such as Decode and Conquer, um, we've worked with this framework a lot, the Circle of Frameworks, and most recently, he's. We're here to talk about his new book, which is "Be the Greatest Product Manager Ever." So, thanks so much for being here, Lewis.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah. So, um, to start out, could you just tell us a little bit about the book? You know, what was your motivation for writing it? You know, maybe about your creative process.
2: Absolutely. So, in terms of the motivation, it really comes stems from my audience. I've been working with a lot of uh, PM candidates over the years to get their dream jobs, whether it's at Google, at Facebook, at Amazon, and a lot of them have shared with me the good news and said, Lewis, uh, your methods, your books have worked out beautifully. I'm now a product manager at Google. Mm -hmm. And so now onto the next step. Um, Now that I've got my foot into the door, how do I move up in the organization? How do I become a frontline Uh, Group product manager and then a director and then a VP of product management and in some cases some aspired to perhaps even be the CEO of these tech companies Mm -hmm. and so uh, based off of their feedback I gave it some thought and something that I was been working on in the last three years and earlier in 2019 I was able to come up with this book be the greatest product manager ever which is really about how do you move up in that PM Mm -hmm. career ladder.
0: Cool. Yeah. And the book, as you know, we may have noticed, it centers around this esteem framework, and we're pretty into frameworks here at LeapFrog. So I thought we could kind of go through that framework and talk about each section. Um, You know, at LeapFrog, we sort of we work with uh, companies to sort of build their software solutions. So I'm a little different than the Google Facebook model or um, Microsoft model, but we sort of, we so we kind of come in and act as our development team, as our product managers. So we'd love to sort of delve into that type of product management and how that maybe impacts the process and how that you know impacts the esteem framework. Sure. Cool. So um, the first E in esteem we have is execution. Mm. Um, so what I my favorite part about execution was this idea of system one and system two thinking. Wow. So this idea that system one is like, the type of thinking that you know you plow through your tasks, you plow through your emails and through your checklists and get work done. Whereas the system two is you know how do I engage thoughtfully and how do I you know really look at what the desired outcome should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know when working with clients, sometimes you know they you want to you want to deliver, you want to deliver, you want to sort of have that execution that comes with system one. But how do we kind of bring that back to the system two and sort of engage more thoughtfully?
2: Yeah. Uh, so that's a great question. Um, Starting off, this whole concept from about System 1 and System 2, mm-hmm. it uh, originated with a Nobel Prize winner, Daniel Kahneman, and he wrote about oh. System 1 and System 2 in his book called Thinking Fast and Slow. Mm-hmm. And he, make a great, he makes a great assertion that many of us, as we're going through our day-to-day lives, whether it's um, on the job or at home, we're in a very reactive, like, almost like fight or flight kind of mentality. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, the alarm goes off, I wake up, I brush my teeth. I eat breakfast. I get out the door and I start my commute, and so it's just very reactive. We don't put too much thought into it. And what he's uh, asserting is, uh, system one tasks. You know, we don't have to bat an eye when it comes mm-hmm. to like brushing our teeth or answering our emails, or maybe even sometimes just plowing through and building PRDs, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but other times where we uh, need to be more creative, we need to engage a Different type of mentality, this more thoughtful mentality, this more pensive mentality, called System Two, um, and it's something that a lot of us struggle with because we're in a very go-go-go type uh, world. And so, when it comes to engaging that System Two, um, there's a, you know many things that that come to mind. Um, specifically with clients, you know, taking the time to to have like brainstorming sessions mm-hmm. you know, absolutely makes sense. Or uh, maybe perhaps before doing any sort of big presentation, maybe walking around the block, clearing your head, or you know taking a shower and you know just thinking deep thoughts. Uh, but one of the things that um, I absolutely love, and it's something that's borrowed from uh, one of the, the leading consultancies out there, um, McKinsey, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, they believe in this concept of System One and System Two thinking quite deeply. Mm-hmm. Anytime... time. Uh, A McKinsey consultant, and I've worked with like 40 McKinsey consultants over my career. Anytime a McKinsey consultant is asked to brainstorm something, it doesn't matter if it's business drivers, product ideas, marketing tactics, they all instinctively know that they should not be brainstorming um, in real time Mm -hmm. Uh, because when you brainstorm in real time, uh, you're going to react and you're going to come up with ideas like, okay, okay, okay. I need to come up with ideas. Um, 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 maybe we'll come up with a mobile application or a web application and they're not really great ideas and so what the McKinsey consultants have found out is it's better to just take a step back and say Lillian Mm -hmm. um, I'd be happy to offer some innovative ideas or offer some innovative approaches you know can you give me a minute to think about this Mm -hmm. and then they take a minute silently on their own to think through uh, potential approaches and um, they're not just taking a simple 20 seconds like you and I would. They would take like a full minute, sometimes longer, to the extent that I'm thinking to myself, gosh, these McKinsey consultants, can I go to the bathroom, check my email? <laughs> and when they come back and they do share their ideas, uh, they you know, are absolutely impressive. Like the 10 that they take absolutely pays off. It's not just one or two simple ideas but it's like super thoughtful and creative idea number six and super thoughtful creative idea number seven. Mm. And so always reminding ourselves that even though maybe in front of a client, we might feel like we're under pressure or under the gun, but sometimes uh, understanding that we do need that time to think silently on our own to activate that system two thinking and to almost insist upon it. Sometimes it might be in the presence of the client. Sometimes it simply Mm -hmm. might be like, hey, you know, it's great that you want us to be a little bit more innovative and think more creatively. Why don't we go back to the office, spend a week thinking about it, and we'll come back and present Mm. to you some of our ideas.
0: Yeah, it seems like that growth in quality of ideas is pretty exponential.
2: Absolutely. You just need to be able to think silently on your own. Otherwise, we're just going to get into that very reactive kind of thinking.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So that kind of ties into our the next uh, section of the esteem framework. So uh-huh. the S, which is superior communication. Uh-huh. Um, and so in this section, you talked a lot about frameworks. And as I said before, we love frameworks. <laughs> but sometimes, you know, some clients are... You know frameworks are for everyone sometimes mm-hmm. it takes a bit of convincing to get people on board to a framework mm-hmm. um and so but they can't be very useful to sort of rally around a common goal mm-hmm. um so how would you recommend onboarding clients on specific frameworks and like how can we effectively use good frameworks con- to convince new engagements of our skills
1: mm.
2: that's a good point um i have two thoughts uh, mm-hmm. and they they might be conflicting um, on the first hand, you know, to acknowledge some of the client's skepticism with frameworks, uh, there's a couple things that come to mind. I think one thing that comes to mind is maybe they don't exactly believe um, the framework is relevant to them. They might say, hey, that might work in hardware, but it doesn't work in software. Or that might work with
0: mm-hmm. an internet
2: business, but we're not an internet mm-hmm. business. And so context is one thing. Um, the other thing that I think about when when it comes to using frameworks in a client situation is uh, using a framework might feel a little too textbook. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, let's say if we go to like a, a three-star Michelin restaurant and uh, a famous chef like Gordon Ramsay uses the restaurant industry's equivalent of a framework, which in my mind is a recipe. Mm-hmm. Um, if uh, Chef Ramsay said, Lewis, We're gonna start off with the main course and we're gonna have a souffle. I'm gonna use my souffle framework. Step one, gather your ingredients. Step two, break the eggs. Step three, um, whisk the eggs. Step four, um, you know, warm up the oven. Doesn't that seem a little too uh, junior uh, Mm -hmm. to you as if uh, Chef Ramsey doesn't know what he's doing. Right. And he's positioning his restaurant and his team as the world's best. And so, uh, long story short, um, I think there could be instances where we might need to disguise the use of a framework because it might give clients the impression that um, you know, the team is inexperienced, for instance. Um, but we could always use the framework sometimes also think of frameworks as a checklist mm-hmm. um, in the background um, uh, as a way to make sure that our process is complete satisfying that we're not making mistakes and then perhaps as a way to you know change the culture of a client organization Say, so, hey, if you enjoyed our product design process for example well there's something that you could repeat on your own it's actually a seven-step process that we use mm-hmm. and um, we give this you know, seven-step process and acronym so that it's easy to remember. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really about how you um, introduce the framework that's key. So it's mm-hmm. not uh, completely terrible, but I can understand how <laughs> s- uh, some clients might feel that um, it either is not relevant or um, it feels a little too textbook and um, mm-hmm. something somebody inexperienced would use.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I like that because then if you sort of hide it, then you can just present as a very polished person yeah. who has, you know, is very methodological methodological, and um, without seeming too junior. Yeah. Or too basic. Maybe another
2: clever way to do it is um, to to rebrand the framework um, uh, using the client's language and say, mm-hmm. hey, we created a brand new custom framework just mm-hmm. for you. Yeah, and yeah. It's a way to, uh, demonstrate your value that they're getting <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: yeah I like that yeah I mean I think at the end of the day the the point of a framework is just to you know keep organized and like be the vessel for that communication that you're talking about and so even if they don't know about it you're still it's still a tool for you to communicate effectively mm-hmm. so it doesn't matter how um, if it's hidden behind you know your internal team or yeah or if you bring it up after the fact so yeah. yeah. Um, so moving into tactical awareness, which is the T in the esteem framework, um, one of my favorite parts of this section was the idea that you can be constructive when having a conversation with someone. So um, instead of saying, yes, but, which can sort of you know, cut off their idea flow, you could say, yes, and, so to build off what they're saying and sort of massage the flow of the conversation. Um, and so I thought you could maybe elaborate on this a little bit for us. I think this could be a great technique to make a client feel heard. Um, and you know, how can how can we sort of use that to make clients feel heard, even if they're maybe less technical, or um, you know, or maybe if we disagree with their ideas, for example. Like, how do we massage that relationship?
2: I'm definitely a, a "do as I say, not as I do" kind of person, <laughs> and I I fully admit I. I do the wrong thing all the time which is the yes but Mm -hmm. where I could take somebody's suggestion somebody's proposal somebody's recommendation Mm -hmm. and I immediately think of a thousand ways why it won't work Uh, I guess you know just curse my personality (laughs) my engineering degree I just want to be very analytical and I'm sure you and other people listening to this uh, podcast analytical types too mm-hmm. and uh, the thing that we need to remember is that as analytical as we want to be um, we need to fully understand that by analyzing people's ideas um, it can come across uh, in unintended ways which it could come across as criticism or shutting people down um, and that's something that borderline on the fly and one of the tactics that they strongly encourage is to say yes and because if you fall into the human nature of saying yes but uh, what happens is you're shutting down another performer's suggestion and you're closing off that Mm storyline you're closing off the flow of the story and then now you're just all the entertainment action just comes to a grinding halt Mm -hmm. and so we have a lot to learn from The world of entertainment and improv, which is um, when we do yes and, we don't shut people down. We don't hurt the momentum, in our case, like a meeting, uh, whether it's internally or with a client. And it becomes more constructive where we're able to uh, respect um, other people's ideas and recommendations and we're constructively building on top of it. Rather than tearing it down.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that that idea that the the story from the improv you know gets so much richer and bigger with the yes and instead Absolutely. of the cutting it off. So um, another tactic um, was sort of the how how questions, uh-huh. um, and this is one that we've also sort of discovered in the circle framework as well. Um, so I like that how questions offer an opportunity for clients to think creatively and dream big, and um, so. How would you apply this, sort of maybe in a requirements gathering in the beginning of a project, sort mm. of understanding business requirements? Um, how would you sort of encourage the clients by using how questions?
2: Yeah. Uh, maybe just to start off, I'll, I'll contrast how questions with other types of questions. Sure, yeah. And so, in my book, I assert that um, in the professional setting, um, especially in the tech industry, the most prevalent uh, question type is the why question mm-hmm. and uh, it completely latches on to what we we're saying previously where we're just analytical types sure. and so somebody makes a recommendation and we want to say yes but or <laughs> sometimes we say you know, why does that make any sense it doesn't make any sense to me we tried that before and it never worked yeah and so um, why seems to be the most prevalent usually to either indicate disagreement or skepticism or, you know, some sort of critical commentary on a, on a proposal. Um, the next most prevalent type of question is what questions. You can imagine if we transport ourselves back to when um, we were maybe toddlers, um, for example, a long time ago for me, um, <laughs> but we can imagine like, you know, you know what is that, you know, um, what's the thing in the ocean or what's the thing in the sky, you get a lot of what questions, but. As we get into adulthood, we don't hear as many what questions probably because we have sufficient (laughs) knowledge. We know more. And sometimes uh, if we don't know more, uh, we're afraid to acknowledge that we don't know as much as we should know. know. And so we don't see as many what questions. But these how questions, um, to me, they're pretty rare. And in the book, I mentioned that, you know, how often do we think, oh, um, I'm talking to Lillian, how does the human voice work? Or I'm watching a TV, how does a TV work? Uh, mm-hmm. We just kind of take these things for granted, and so we don't have that um, habit of asking how questions. I think the beauty of asking um, how questions um, really starts off from my perspective as a manager. If you can empower your employees um, to ask how questions it's a actually a very clever way for them to empower themselves with their day-to-day tasks Mm -hmm. and so let's say um there's a particular process they've never done before like developing a product roadmap or developing a wireframe if a manager can empower their employees to say hey uh, lewis how would you approach building out a product roadmap Um, this is a subtle way to you know, train the employee on t- a technique, a skill that they don't currently have, mm-hmm. without you as a manager basically taking over their work. Because I feel like that's the most common situation where managers unnecessarily hover over their employees and mm-hmm. say, hey, you know what, you don't have experience doing roadmaps, let me just do it for you because it's quicker and faster and, um, you know, it'll be just best for everyone involved. And then at that point, the manager, seemingly logical conclusion, Basically, has robbed uh, a junior employee from the opportunity to learn, and so um, between you know the training aspect of it, the empowering aspect where the employee is not necessarily asking like like what do you want me to have in the product roadmap, well, but how would you approach this problem, and then it's just a natural thing for us as um, individuals to always share our opinion, and so rarely would you hear a reaction to a how question and say, no, I'm not gonna tell you how. Everyone's got an opinion on how something should be done, and so it's actually a very, very effective question. Um, In terms of other day-to-day activities, um, I think uh, within peers, um, we can see how questions being very, very effective. So let's say me as a product manager, maybe I need to um, extract some data from a database rather than impose upon the data analyst or the data scientist and say hey can you please run the sql query for me it's very empowering and it doesn't impose on a peer by asking them instead if you're in my shoes how would you run the sql query
0: mm-hmm. And then that
2: way you could uh, um, take ownership of your work without imposing on somebody else and you've also given them an opportunity to show their opinion which everyone loves uh, another way that you can do it is you can use how questions Uh, to um, extrapolate any sort of feelings Mm -hmm. people have. And so a common thing that I've seen with engineers is maybe a product manager would say, hey, our client has this requirement, Um, I want you to build this. And then you see the engineers become quiet or shifty um, or some sort of awkward body language. And what's going on is there's probably some sort of unsurfaced emotion that these engineers might have mm-hmm. when it comes to the product manager's request. And that's where a how question can come in perfectly. And, and so they, um, the product manager could ask, um, you know, based off of the client requirements, how do you feel about this on a scale of one to 10?
0: Okay. And then yeah. from
2: there, you might get some hidden information had you not asked that how question. And they'll say, you know what, Lewis, um, I'll be quite honest to you, I feel like it's a three. And then at that point, that's a very productive conversation of, okay, so you're not feeling great about it. You know, what would make it from a three to a seven or from a three to a 10? And that could reveal a lot of um, hidden issues that might not have been expressed normally.
0: Right, because some people aren't going to be super forthcoming about their issues. And so having tools to uncover that seems really valuable. Yeah,
2: because normally it just doesn't feel safe to utter some of these things Mm -hmm. because maybe uttering concern seems like they're not a team player or they're not capable. And so you know that how question does make it a safe space to do to to share those opinions.
0: Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, questions come up a lot for us also mm-hmm. in the discovery period, which is, you know, the beginning of our engagement with a new client where we're taking a lot of these how questions. Also, your five W questions that you've outlined. Um, but sometimes, like, long questioning periods, clients can be like, oh, let's just let's just get into it. Let's just get into the project. And But we really value that time to really figure out what they're trying to do. And, mm-hmm. and like you were just saying, sort of uncover new truths that may not have otherwise surfaced. Mm-hmm. So how do we, what's a good way to, you know, I guess show or, or give time to that and that see, that help clients see that that's really necessary for us to be able to, build something super effective for yeah.
2: them. You used to have a question. I loved it. Oh, I? <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a couple of things that come to mind. I think the first thing is, um, yeah, absolutely. You want to read the client's body language and if they're in a rush, in a hurry, or mm-hmm. they're impatient, they don't want to play a game of 20 questions, then, then you absolutely want to get to it. Um, but I find the interesting thing is uh, if you establish with the client Um, that there's a critical information discovery phase um, and you just pose it as, hey, um, we absolutely don't want to waste your time. We want to get going with the engagement, but just to help us be a little bit more effective and efficient, you know, can we ask you um, a couple of questions or can we spend the next 20 minutes asking a couple of questions? And then after we do that, we'll share a little bit of how we plan to approach uh, the, the project think establishing those expectations, um, mm-hmm. they're, they're more willing to answer those questions. Um, but even if that is uttered and they're still like, hey, we just don't have any patience for this, maybe we'll have a shot at like one question or two questions, um, then I normally try to ask uh, the, the most important open-ended questions. So it might be with a client, it might be the question, hey, uh, when it comes to this client engagement, Um, what does success look like to you? Mm -hmm. Or when it comes to this engagement, uh, what's the number one problem that you want us to solve? Or if we were to have an engagement, um, which project or problem did you want to offload onto us? And then um, I feel like those are sufficiently open-ended questions that they probably have strong, deep, and long-winded opinions Mm -hmm. about um, that uh, starting from there, I'm sure... um, consultants will have a great opportunity to ask additional follow-up questions just based off of that one single open-ended question
0: cool yeah that makes sense um i think you know and that kind of brings us into the next section this idea of you know using data versus using intuitive decision making Mm -hmm. so once we've asked those questions and we're you know trying to come up with a solution um you you know we really need to rely on both solid data and -hmm. and as well on intuition um So I'd love to hear from you, like how do we choose when to use which tactic? Because Mm -hmm. I think sometimes, um, you know, we can't fully trust our intuition. We need Mm -hmm. to fall back on data, but sometimes if, you know, and other times like intuition can enter this realm of assumptions, Mm -hmm. you know, which we also don't want to tap into. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear more thoughts on this dynamic.
2: I'd say in general, we should tap into our, uh, you know, data as much as we can, Mm because I can't tell you countless number of times where I am just completely sure and certain with all my knowledge and expertise and experience that this has gotta be the best way to do it. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, several days, months, years (laughs) later, I realized, you know what, there were some assumptions that I assumed were correct, and I was completely dead wrong, and boy, I wish I had gotten this (laughs) fleshed out. Earlier rather than later, mm-hmm. and so um, I feel like there's a lot of tools these days to allow us to get data. Um, for example, if we're building websites or mobile applications, there's mm-hmm. tons of A/B test suites where we can uh, test an A version versus a B version and and look at the data and against the metrics that we care about and see which ones uh, clearly outperform uh, you know one versus another. Um, also, another th- Data-driven tool that I absolutely love is to do surveys, and Amazon's completely changed the world on that with um, Mechanical Turk. Uh, You'll be shocked at um, how little it costs to be able to run a survey and get some quick opinions from like a hundred people or two hundred people. Very cool. Um, That being said, you know, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say intuition is completely uh, useless. Um, we don't have to look any farther than to look at uh, the late Steve Jobs, and he was a very, very intuition-driven person. Um, the circumstances where I think intuition um, absolutely makes sense um, is the classic, you know, Steve Jobs quote where he said, "You know, if you ask if um, Henry Ford asked his customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. They wouldn't have said a car."
0: Ah, uh, yeah. And
2: so when it comes to innovation, uh, as much as you want to pull and ask and get data from your customers as to what to build next, they might not have the imagination to realize that they uh, needed an airline where they don't have assigned seats. They might not have the imagination to realize that they needed a space rocket company where the rocket components are reusable and would touch down back uh, to the initial Landing uh, pad. We just have these embedded assumptions that oh, you know, all the you know, professional airlines should really have assigned seats. Or when you do send space rockets to Mars, once the rockets have been exhausted, then you just take it to the trash heap. Um, and so, you know, it takes a innovator, um, you know, who can you know think differently, uh, to to use their intuition and to paint these. Um, future scenarios uh, for the customers uh, the other part that I see intuition playing a big part is um, if if somebody's you know just starting and uh, with a new you know client base or audience or um, user persona they might not know the target audience all too well and so it makes a lot of sense to acquire a, a lot of research and data about them. But let's say if um, a company has been servicing a certain client base for a very, very long time, mm-hmm. maybe like three years, five years, 10 years, um, and they've heard every single need, problem, solution um, out there as possible, um, maybe it's not necessary to get data about, let's say, customer needs because they've heard it all. Mm-hmm. and. Um, it's okay to use intuition because by using intuition, um, you're gaining something very valuable, which is speed. And so rather than spending time to go research customers or spending money to go research customers, you could use your own intuition, which is just right there. Mm-hmm. And you have like 98, 99% confidence that your intuition is correct because you've been in the business for so long. You've, you know the customers inside and out with like the palm of your hand that um, You you can get those benefits without having to go run off and do a bunch of focus groups.
0: That makes sense Have you ever been on projects or engagements where you know, you had to be like, whoa whoa, whoa, guys We have to break out the data and people were trying to go gung-ho on the intuition side
2: I think in a lot of instances um, You know, that's just your Confidence bias a lot of times we feel like oh, we've talked to five customers we know okay. it all. Or we talked to 10 customers, we know it all. Or we talked to 20 or maybe 50 customers, we know it all. And quite honestly, no. <laughs> There's still a lot of cases for you to uncover. Um, I was actually just thinking about one earlier this morning um, with some of my other books. You know, My reputation is based off of communication skills. And so um, for the last 15 years, I've been thinking to myself, you know what, yeah, Lewis, your communication skills are pretty darn awesome. Um, but recently there's kind of this new space that I'm investigating and I'm actually thinking to myself, you know what, I don't think my communication skills are all that great in this brand new realm because there's a lot of things that I want to express and I just don't have the words for it. And so I always have to check your blind spots. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you feel like you're really strong even after like 15, 20 years in a certain space like communications and you realize and you wake up one day and you're like, you know what, I wasn't as strong as I thought. <laughs>
0: That seems like a lot of self-awareness to have. (laughs) It's not always easy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, So I guess our next, yeah, the next little part is roadmaps. And Mm. um, I think you sort of argue that, you know, roadmaps aren't always super helpful because then you're spending all this time looking six months into the future. And as Mm. we all know, products change, you know, clients have different visions. We have to move to new features, whatever that may be. So if you're wasting all this time writing it, it's, yeah, it's a waste of time. Mm -hmm. But... um, I think sometimes, you know, we've had engagements where, you know, we're, we're building a new tool that will change a business process. So we kind of need a, a roadmap to sort of keep us aligned and make sure that, um, you know, the new team, at the client can, evolve, like, adhere to this new process um, and our team can also stay on track. Um, what would you say to that example, I guess? Or would you ever, would you think it's a hard no on product roadmaps? <laughs> <or>? <laughs> um
2: I, I love this question, and uh, it really shows that you you come through my book with a with a fine tooth comb. Um, I think just off the bat, um, because I'm a big fan of communication and expectation setting, mm-hmm. um, I have to say that uh, roadmaps are important, absolutely sure. important, because it it sets expectations, it mm-hmm. communicates clearly with you know, the consulting team with a client, like what's gonna be built when. Mm -hmm. And so, um, just in case anyone's like, what, (laughs) who is this guy? who says no to roadmaps, like no, no, no. Uh, (laughs) Roadmaps are absolutely important. Um, I think the key insight, which is, uh, I think you were able to drive on, which is, it's it's really being about flexible Mm -hmm. um, with the roadmap. I think a, a more recent example that, I, that I've just been thinking about is, you know, Facebook, for example, and mm-hmm. everybody and their mother uses Facebook, um, and one of the biggest milestones was, um, uh, you know, in the 2016 election here in the United States. Facebook had a pretty significant role, despite mm-hmm. what their executives said, in in spreading misinformation um, that clearly influenced uh, the 2016 U.S. election. Um, what I find really interesting thing interesting about that situation, um, as it relates to product roadmaps, is, you know, if they were really paying attention, they would have known uh, that there was a risk for misinformation, and it looks like they did know that there was a risk for misinformation, even as early as maybe 2014, 2013, oh, really? wow. um, and um, they were in denial then, uh, and they continue to be in denial shortly after the election, right? Mm-hmm. Even as the inquiries came in in 2017 and 2018. And now we're sitting in 2019 with another election happening next year in the United States. And now they're starting to not only acknowledge that there's a problem with misinformation, but now they're configuring the roadmaps mm-hmm. to actually do something about it. And so I think the net, net lesson here is um, you know, shame on Facebook. They were inflexible Mm -hmm. with their roadmap in terms of reacting to a customer problem, a customer need, Mm -hmm. and I think that's the bigger point about roadmaps is, you know, stay flexible so that you don't make the mistake that Facebook did so that the roadmap could allow for the fact that in 2013, you know, on, you know, know, uh, to be able to turn the boat immediately and say you know what this misinformation we're seeing it on the horizon it's a problem mm-hmm. we need to completely reconfigure the roadmap rededicate resources so we can address the problem rather than to just drag this out right and so uh one last uh thought or quote that kind of encapsulate this as it relates to roadmaps and being flexible I believe amazon has a a, a great um saying which is They have strong beliefs Mm -hmm. held weekly Uh, and so I think that's a a good mantra to have also with the roadmaps which is when it comes to the roadmaps you have a strong belief um, because I'm sure a client doesn't want a consulting team that's you know wavering and Mm -hmm. and their belief on what needs to be built and so you know set forth um, the strongest possible roadmap with the accompanying rationale, thinking, Mm -hmm. details behind it, but if there is a situation where the client wants um, a little bit of a change in the roadmap, or if there's some sort of competitive shift or technology shift, um, to be able to have the flexibility to to react to that and not be wedded to uh, what was agreed upon yesterday.
0: Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So our roadmaps, they can't be built out of concrete or stone. We should keep them a little, a little more pliable and you know, they're sort of, so I guess, um, so would you say that we should keep product product roadmaps at sort of a higher level then, like not get too deep into the weeds with them um, in order to keep them more pliable?
2: You know, I'm still a big fan of details and so the more details you have, the better. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the, the business term is, is sunk costs, where sometimes people believe like, oh well, because we've built these er- elaborate plans right? Yeah. and we've got all these details and we we spent all this time to get buy-in from you know our executive team, the engineering team, the client mm-hmm. and the client's respective teams that if we were to change it now, what a waste. Okay, yeah. Um and and you know, in line with this whole uh, business theory of sunk costs. I, I'm saying, you know, it's not a waste. Mm-hmm. Um, it's okay to uh, change plans or to throw away, away work, you know, if that work is not relevant.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah. that that work that you did ultimately got you to the point where you had to change your mind. So in some ways, even if it wasn't directly used, it still helped shape the direction overall, I would say, too. Yeah,
2: there's a beautiful uh, Maya Angelou quote that I just came across recently, which is, do the do the best as you can.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And then um, when you know better, then do mm-hmm. it better. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, don't, don't get all hung up on the fact that, um, you know, you're throwing away work or don't get hung up by the fact that you couldn't get it right the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, because as you kind of inferred, um, all the work that you've done previously, you know, it's not only part of that process, but whatever knowledge or detail or buy-in that you've gotten is probably accruing to some future, uh, work that you, uh, you you may not have realized.
0: Mm -hmm. All right. So let's, let's keep moving. So jumping back out to the esteem framework, our next E would be extraordinary mental toughness. So, um, I like this, this is sort of, you know, keeping resolute and having good mental practices to be successful. So, um, Another idea in this section is um, politics. So mm. navigating power structures and that kind of dynamic in an organization, and mm. you know that can take a long time to learn to figure out. You know who works well with who, who doesn't work well with who, and like how to get ahead with certain people. Um, I was curious if you had any insight to, to like, especially in a client, you know, with work like ours, if it's a new engagement, mm. it's that much harder to sort of learn their whole mm. po- political structure. So I was wondering if you had any experience with that. Or any ideas about that?
2: Yeah. When it comes to politics, um, and I'm glad you bring that up because I feel like there are some folks uh, who have, they just kind of flat out refuse to believe that politics <laughs> is, exists um, and that, you know, meritocracies rule. But, uh, <laughs> you know, unfortunately, um, it's when you need to get things done um, you need to be able to influence others and sometimes you need to influence others without authority and that is the definition of politics which is how do you influence somebody to do what they don't want to do Mm -hmm. so influence without authority Um, when it comes to politics there's a couple of things that i would want to figure out the first thing is you know where are the power centers who's got basically decision-making authority Mm -hmm. the second thing is who are the key influencers of those power centers Mm -hmm. and then the last thing I'd want to think about is who holds um, keys to maybe critical resources Um, in this case I'm not talking like about oil or diamonds or things like that (laughs) I'm talking about maybe you know who's got access to maybe the builders like the engineers, sure. um, or he has got access to um the people who bring in the money mm-hmm. for the company, like the, the salespeople, yeah. um, etc. Uh the other thing that I would uh try to think about is um you know as we're as we're going into a client situation, you know, asking uh, the clients okay like, hey, like who has final authority or who has got final say
1: mm-hmm.
2: about this and asking like uh, who do those people listen to? Which is kind of a clever way of wording, like who influences who. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing about power in politics is, especially in the client situation, is um, you know understanding everyone's motivation. And I think a common motivation is people want to look good, um, mm-hmm. and it's understandable because they want to look good so they can get promoted. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, what are some of the ways to to flatter? Um, clients uh, I see one common tactic is um, many consultants often get their clients involved with let's say final presentations and allow the client to present the consulting firms work um, as a way to get Mm -hmm. buy-in but also to let the client look good Um, and I know some consulting firms have problems with that because like wait but we did the work (laughs) (laughs) why should we let the client look as if they did the work um but you know flattery makes a difference and so to the extent that either the consulting firm or just you know peers in general are able to set aside their egos to mm-hmm. to to be able to you know look out for others um is a very powerful way to get things done
0: mm-hmm so moving on, still in this esteem framework, the next E we have exceptional exceptional team builder. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and you talk a lot, about, a lot about team dynamics in here. Yeah. Um, and you talked a lot about onboarding in one section, and yeah. so uh, that's really relevant for us right now. We're kind of trying to develop and uh, shift our best practices for onboarding people onto existing product, projects, which can sometimes be a challenge to get people up to speed quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess, can you recommend how to stay me- me- methodical during this process It mm-hmm. um, still have some speed to it as well?
2: Yeah, when it comes to onboarding, um, the first thing that comes to mind is um, executives often uh, feel like, oh, uh, I'm very senior now. I mm-hmm. should not get into the details of um, teaching frontline employees how to do their jobs. Mm-hmm. But I've actually found that um, that's not the right mindset because you know, technique, um, skills, technical skills, th- they absolutely matter. And um, you know, the executives are the best ones Mm-hmm. to be able to inculcate how things were done you know, in relation to the company. A lot of executives would just say, hey, let's go find a third party firm to teach us the fundamentals of how to build a roadmap or to communicate. Mm-hmm. And so I think the better executives will get in the trenches and, and do that training. Um, that aside, I think a great thing to do is to um, you know, have a, a documented process in terms of, um, you know, this is just part of the culture in terms of how we do things and here's how to do it. And so um, to use another Amazon analogy, uh, Amazon's known for uh, writing these um, briefs mm-hmm. basically ahead of every single meeting. It's usually like a six page memo that um, that is uh, you know, their proposal and then once, a meeting starts the first 15 minutes. Everyone just reads these proposals silently on their own. Oh, yeah. And then they have these questions. And so, um, yeah, it, they've got an established process mm-hmm. for how meetings are run, um, what kind of documentation is being brought to the meeting, who's preparing it. Usually, a product manager who's slaving away for days um, to craft this perfect six page memo. And then as it relates to onboarding, um, they do have new employee onboarding where they do teach employees the fundamentals of, like, here's how you craft that six-page memo. Mm-hmm. Here's what we look for in terms of the different sections, in terms of the appropriate amount of detail without being um, you know, too flowery, and appropriate use of jargon. And so um, establishing all of that up front will absolutely pay dividends just from setting expectations um, getting people the skills that they need, and then of course getting the right results.
0: Mm-hmm. So having a framework for yeah. bringing, that yeah. framework, absolutely. That's cool. Yeah, um, and so I guess part of that too is this idea of giving feedback to people on a team. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was curious, um, you know, you, you discussed the process of giving feedback. Is is that would you say that that's something that you should develop, like if it's a specific person, should you see that behavior multiple times and like develop mm. this pattern before you give feedback? Or is it something that as soon as you see it, you should give feedback? Like how do you, what's the appropriate cadence there?
2: You know, I think it depends on a case by case basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the analytical person in me, I want to just give the feedback as quickly as possible. right? And then the results driven part of me wants my peer, my employees, to um, rectify <laughs> their behavior as quickly as possible. Sure. Um, but that being said, I think everyone reacts to feedback differently. Um, there are some people which they can handle the feedback; they don't take it personally, mm-hmm. and you know, within milliseconds, they're already changing their behavior mm-hmm. um, in, in reaction to the feedback. And you know, if you have those kind of folks on your team, you know, fantastic, because they're, they'll are they be able to go through that feedback loop very quickly and change the behaviors and improve at a much faster rate than somebody else. But then there are people on the other side of the equation where um, they don't react well to feedback, they get defensive and they try to ignore it or deny it mm-hmm. or um, otherwise explain it away. And so I think in those cases, um, you know, managers, peers, they, they have to be um, more patient, and then they'll probably have to think of other techniques to help them see, you know, that the feedback is warranted and so that they, they will take appropriate reactions. So, um, I feel like it's just a very case-by-case basis. Sure,
0: you have to know the people, yeah. figure, figure them out yeah. and figure out what would work for them. The yeah. Point. Okay, so we come to the last portion of the esteem framework is sure. the moonshot vision. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is sort of like, you know, coming back to those big thinkers, like you mentioned Steve Jobs, um, these people that can just really go above and beyond and have that creativity. Um, and so you talk about the idea of delight, you know, Mm. how do we, and so I guess, how do we delight our clients and then by default delight the end users? Like, can you talk more about the idea of delighting in this moonshot vision?
2: Oh gosh. Uh. I mean, there's plenty of great examples of, of customer delight. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it's some of the amazing things that, you know, Apple does with their products or Zappos Mm -hmm. is known for their customer service where they um, surprise and delight their customers with like free upgrades to uh, overnight shipping, which doesn't seem as exciting anymore, but they were one of the first ones to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the interesting thing is when it comes to innovation and delight, um, I don't believe that you can just will it and it'll happen. Mm-hmm. Um, innovative ideas, delightful ideas, it, it just requires a big volume of ideas to be able to come up with one or two really delightful ideas. And, and here's why I'm so confident in that is, um, you know, one of the most delightful innovators in, in our generation, Steve Jobs, like, yes, he came up with products that delight, like the Mac and mm-hmm. the iPhone and the iPod and iTunes and the iPod. Um, but then I also think back on some of the other products he invented, like the hockey puck mouse, Yeah. Um, like the, what was it, late 1990s, early 2000s. And the really odd thing about this hockey puck mouse was that you didn't know which way was up. And so you... Grabbed the cursor and you couldn't find the cursor on the screen.
0: Oh, funny. Or
2: the other thing that he came up with was um, he was looking at his garden and he saw these um, really beautiful sunflowers with these graceful necks. And he thought to himself, you know what? We need to build a monitor that looks like a sunflower. Mm-hmm. And we don't see a lot of monitors with sunflower like necks anymore because they probably just snapped off and broke. <laughs> right. Right. And so even if the great Steve Jobs could not consistently come up with delightful products like 100% of the time, mm-hmm. then I feel like us as uh, product visionaries, innovators, you know, our best chance is coming up with something delightful is to do the same exact approach Steve did, which was you just have to innovate a lot of products. Mm-hmm. And you know, out, out of the hundreds, maybe thousands of ideas, maybe one, two, or three ideas you know, are truly different and groundbreaking and um, innovative, and so um, not being embarrassed to try. And uh, probably right now, one of the best companies in doing so is Amazon, where they're just innovating at volume. If you look at their Echo devices, it seems to me they have like 25 different versions Mm -hmm. of the Echo speaker, and they've got Echo Microwave, and Echo Clock, and Mm -hmm. Echo Bed, and Echo Chair. Like, there's nothing that's not <laughs> echo-enabled. Sure. Um, and I think they're doing innovation the right way because uh, when you're not 100% certain, you just need to experiment. And um, you know, hopefully you'll have, make very educated experiments and hypotheses, um, but it really takes volume to see which one you know, truly sticks.
0: Sure, yeah. It reminds me of what we were talking about earlier this idea of failure. Like, it seems like, you know, even with Steve Jobs, there's always going to be an element of failure. And it's just about iterating and, you know, getting back on the horse and trying again. I think,
2: practically speaking, just for us product managers, I think it's very easy for us to fall in love with an idea, Mm -hmm. but always to, um, despite the enthusiasm, which is awesome, um, just pausing, taking a step back Mm -hmm. and saying, okay, that's one idea seems promising, but what are five other ways to approach it? Or what are 50 other ways to approach it? Because um, as the saying goes, there's always more than one way to solve a problem. So don't mm-hmm. fall in love with the first solution.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, so you also have this idea of um, you know being an effective thought partner, which we mm-hmm. really try to embody at LeapFrog and we talk about that a lot. And so I'd love to hear from you. Um, How you think you can be an effective thought partner to a client or to you know to a project what that term means to you
2: yeah you know the first thing that comes to mind is just uh being respectful and i don't know Mm -hmm. if i'm just influenced by the times but i feel these days um everyone is just so sure of their opinions that they're so willing to uh, dismiss or discard other people's opinions and shut those opinions down um, as an observer it's it's easy to see other people's flaws um, but uh, who knows maybe they're aware of their own flaws who knows maybe they've been attempting to fix those flaws and mm-hmm. so um, there's a saying that I have in the book um, you know People's power of observation is usually pretty dead on. It doesn't matter if you're an expert or a novice. Mm-hmm. If um, my mom or dad says, Lewis, your communication skills, you know, you tell really boring stories, they <laughs> have a point, right? Um, but I think where um, people are challenged, once again, both novice and experts, is okay, if my storytelling skills are boring, like, how do I improve upon them? And mm-hmm. I think the solution is really really hard because once again there's probably 30 different ways to solve sure. my, my boring st- storytelling skills and so um, you know, going into these conversations with clients you know just be kind be nice um, they're probably aware of their flaws and your, your observations of those flaws are absolutely um, probably correct um, but uh, you know getting the right solution in place does take time and uh, you know just hearing out the client. Um, and respecting them is absolutely key.
0: Awesome, cool. Well, is there anything else you'd like to leave us with? We've gone through the whole framework.
2: Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun talking with you. You've got a lot of thoughtful questions and um, yeah, it's been great being on the show.
0: Thank you so much for coming and taking the time to speak to us about product
1: management and your book.